Welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time that you're tuning in to watch us, be sure to check out all of our content. You could go to YouTube, you could go to focuscompound.com, you could follow me on Twitter at focuscompound, or you could get um, access to our frequent videos and investing topic write-ups from Jeff and our podcast backlog as well at focuscompound.com slash app. Tons of content out there. Be sure to check it out. Um, if you're watching us on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, bringing you um, the rundown between Vetla and myself, these podcasts, and we have some other stuff planned as well. Um, we're posting frequent videos there. So wherever you're watching, hit the subscribe button, give us some support, and we're definitely very appreciative of that. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about competition. And we spent a lot of time during recording this batch really talking about like gross profits. Mm -hmm. And when I was in a different podcast, I was talking about how I tweeted out something that you wrote uh, from in 2017 about gross profits and learning to move up the income statement. I was, um, I tweeted a little bit about when you were talking about market power okay. and you define market power as the number one business model that you typically think about when it comes to companies. And you define it as the ability to make demands on customers and suppliers free from the fear that those customers and suppliers can credibly threaten to end their right. relationship with you. Yes. And you were talking about, you know, you don't think how competition, you don't think about it really as a company competes away uh, other companies in most situations. It's really, you know, sort of like their bargaining power with their suppliers. Right. You said market power is often misunderstood as being an advantage, uh, as being an advantage one competitor has over another. That's the wrong way of thinking about it. Businesses don't squeeze profits from competitors. Businesses squeeze profits from customers and suppliers. Correct, yeah. And then you went on to talk about that. So yeah. I have Porter's Five Forces, up, okay. um, which, you know, talks about different forms of, you know, I guess, trying to shield away uh, mm -hmm. competition. And I figured right. we could talk about this. I mean, is there really, like, if, if you had to pinpoint it to, like, that's the most uh, important type of competitive advantage, is there one or is it just so different for every company? I mean, patents? Patents more, are relatively unimportant. You know, some sort of... I mean, I'd say there. patents are the most overvalued, but the most common example that I think has little value. Okay. I mean, I think they have value for the term that they run for certain kinds of things because otherwise you have to try to get around them. But I think that that's the most common reason that people give that I think isn't that important. The two that I think are, are pat that people exaggerate are patents and um, uh, switching costs. Okay. Yeah. I think they're relatively unimportant compared to what people think. Why is that? Especially switching costs. Well, switching costs, this gets complicated, but I don't think the reason why most people don't switch has much to do with the cost. Some of it is mental and stuff like that. But um, in general, why companies don't, it's not convincing the argument that if you look at what companies tend to retain their customers, the actual difficulty of switching is not necessarily that high. It, it could be, Switching costs, if we don't mean financial costs, I believe it. But if you mean financial costs, no, it's not that important. Like, for instance, we talked about ad agencies and stuff. Ad agencies are better able to retain customers who have no contract with them that that, that would like cost them anything to cancel versus things that actually cost you something to cancel. So, like, for instance, more people will cancel a lease and have to pay on it and stuff, a penalty, than will actually cancel um, their relationship with an ad agency under which they would have to give barely any notice and wouldn't have any cost to them. But the uh, the 
complications throughout their entire organization of leaving an ad agency would be huge. And so the financial costs are minimal. That happens all the time. Uh, sunk costs that people perceive that they have, so they renew with something and then they don't want to go with someone else because of that. But in general, I would say the actual idea that financially it's very hard is not convincing. It's not really that expensive to make a lot of the switches that we've talked about. I mean, we've talked about that many times that we've tested things and stuff that way. Generally, why people don't do that has other reasons. Why you stick with your bank or your broker, I'm not convinced has anything to do with the actual costs that you would incur. I think they're minimal. Mm. What do you think about costs as a competitive advantage? Depends. I generally think cost is the weakest um, advantage that you can have. And why is that? Because that could get competed away over time because some people don't care. I mean, there's certain things that people pay up for, right? Convenience, um, peace of mind. Yeah. I, th- I, I don't know exactly, but I think that cost in general is going to be the easiest to have competed away over time. So I think um, now that gets a little complicated because in certain industries, it would be a very big advantage. But in those industries, having low expenses is usually the advantage. So um, like uh, insurance is a good example. Uh, Geico and, and, and Progressive have low expenses. And that's an advantage because they can underwrite with the same skill as other companies can, and they actually make money because you can offer something that others can't that way. I mean, the, the biggest thing, here's the thing. Um, how you survive competitively is you have to be able to do something that your competitors can't do. That's it. So you need a non-survivable niche, a niche in which you can survive and they can't. They can't get from here to there for some reason. And that's just the key issue. That's the only issue. And if that's the way you think about it, that's the, that will solve all these problems about having to, to figure it out. So for instance, um, let's say you have like, for instance, they talk about economies of scale. There are very big economies of scale in banking, but they're not helpful in keeping competitors out because you can start making some return at a very early level. However, in like a brewery or something, it would be hard. In a Hollywood movie that's a $200 million production, that has different economics than $20 million production, and so you can keep them out. But in a winery, you can't because you can start to make money at a very small scale for a winery versus a very big scale. So economies of scale is not that convincing to me for some companies like, um, let's say, Coke or something, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that Coke wasn't able to keep Monster from existing. It's not able now to keep Celsius from existing. It's too profitable at too early a stage, whereas you need an industry where it's not profitable until you get to a certain size, mm-hmm. um, or it's not safe at least. So the ones where the economies of scale are truly, um, I would say, uh, likely to protect you are things like Boeing and Airbus. Okay, because they're mega projects where it costs so much to do to do that. Um, It's even better if you don't have new customers coming in because that makes it very hard to survive. So it's industries where there's almost no new customers and the average customer order is very big and things like that are almost impossible to crack. So, for instance, um, someone needs you to build a new nuclear reactor. Uh While there's growth in the 50s and 60s and stuff in nuclear reactors, you could win over a country that's never had a nuclear reactor or something. But once the number of nuclear reactors built each year peaks, then there's almost no chance of a new competitor coming in because everyone's already worked with an engineering firm on building one. And why would you ever give business to a company that's brand new in the industry? Why would you be the first one to do it? Just like why would you be the first one to build a uh, to do a wide body passenger jet or something like that. Why would you do it? You want it. Um, so if you have no new customers, 
that tends to be the advantage. The problem is in any industry with very high numbers of new customers, it's very hard to keep out competition. Mm-hmm. You've often talked about um, like cement plants, how, yes. like regional things like that, casinos, right. amusement so, parks. Yeah, like so that. cement plants is exactly that. It's not survivable in the sense that all you have to do is keep your prices below those of companies outside. So you can just raise your prices up to the point at which uh, they don't file anymore. Mm-hmm. Monarch cement, yeah, so it won't be updated. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, all you have to do is... Um, you so there's two factors right there's the economies of scale that you have at your own plant and stuff but the bigger factor that keeps out competitors is that the the low value to weight ratio Mm -hmm. low value to weight ratio is very attractive it's i would say one of the best monopolies uh, best um, competitive advantage you can ever have and often results in a monopoly uh for a couple reasons one is that it um makes it so that, like I said, it's impossible for a competitor to beat you on price as long as they're far enough away from you. Mm -hmm. So that's one advantage for it. But the second issue has to do with rivalry. The great advantage for low value to rate, uh, low value to weight ratio is it tends to result in honest bidding by which I mean that you can bid your honest self-interest. So So in like a game theory perspective, it's very advantageous if you imagine like a poker game or something for everyone to actually bid their actual chance of winning that results in a situation in which everyone can have an idea of what's happening yeah. and do well versus situations in which it might be an advantage to try to hide certain information from your competitors do you remember one time you were telling me a story about a company that it was like a chemical cleanup or something to do with like the mafia okay. Somebody yes. came in out of nowhere and just bid like 20% of what everybody else did to win the, the job yes. or something like it that. What happened a, with that? It was a, there had been a quarry and it was to bring in dirt um, to fill it up to begin residential development. And someone bid much less than everyone else. And the result is that uh, the soil was contaminated because they were obviously bidding so low because they had a separate side deal from someone else to take their contaminated soil from like a Superfund site or whatever. And of course, it was it was mafia related and stuff. Uh-huh. But yeah, that, that's exactly what it was. And now the bid, of course, was so low. And there was a huge investigation because it was like, why would you take a bid that low if everyone else was bidding 50 cents or it's a mile or whatever, and they bid 18, why did you do that? <laughs> yeah. And that was the reason why. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, what about like, um, you know, like movie theaters or maybe not even movie theaters, but like you could think like a Top Golf. I would say that's sort of a regional thing, even though it's not like a regional casino, but what, okay. are, what are your thoughts on like those like entertainment type stuff? Sure. So, the, I mean, it, it depends the issue with some, so like taking entertainment movies and stuff, the big attractive space in that industry is in distribution of movies. So movie distribution has tended to be pretty safe for a very long time, uh, since almost sound and in some cases before sound. Um, and there's a few reasons for that, right? One of the big reasons is that which you're seeing why there's a problem in movies right now is that like Disney had to dump Mulan. Um, and the reason why they did is there's not enough dates. So they have this issue. Publishers and books have the same issue and stuff. You can only focus your, in, your public relations stuff on promoting so many movies at a time. So you can only put out, you can't put out a movie every week. In addition to that, your competitor wants to put out movies on certain days. So they, you can't release two competing movies at the same time or you'll both hurt your movies. This is kind of like if you built two cement plants mm-hmm. next to each other, right? So for that reason, during COVID, you've had this backing up where now you're coming up on dates that unless we shift all movies that were intended to come out for a few years to make up for this, they're not going to be spread out enough. And the every 
studio will make less money on each movie each that they already made. The movies cost just as much to make. So they'll have raised the competition in the industry on particular weekends, and you'll all get a worse return. So a big thing in like when we talk about um, this competition stuff is how well can they collude? Okay. Now, sometimes collusion is illegal in some cases and stuff. Sometimes it's not. And for movie theaters and stuff, there's a very, uh, movie um, studios, there's a very high degree of allowed collusion. They collude on, um, by which I mean that they cooperate to reduce competition and stuff in their industry to do certain things. And it benefits us as customers. And that's often the case. Sometimes there are forms of cooperation within an industry which would benefit the customers and that's what happens for moviegoers you benefit from them not putting out all the movies that you want to see at the same time that would hurt you yeah and so they don't do it they yeah. spread them out well it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger was talking about that in Total Recall how one of them what movie was it it was like a big flop because of I forget who uh, it was, was just, it Last Action it, yeah. some, I don't know okay. something came out on a uh, when they were doing their premiere or whatever that was like way more popular than their movie and they got hit by it that. might have but been Last Action here on Jurassic Park yeah. but I don't it was, that's exactly yeah, yeah. what it was yep Jurassic yeah. Park yeah. so unfortunately because they're rated the same I think they're both PG-13 and um, they, they appeal to the same sort of yeah. audience and all that yeah. yeah so you try not to do that so you um, and also uh, Hollywood things also work together to avoid title confusion so they sort of have a central database for titles too so they avoid doing naming things the same that would confuse you they avoid having me uh, marketing campaigns and things that would confuse you and stuff like that and i don't know if you remember you probably i don't know they mentioned a little bit in the movie disney war in the book disney war but um they had an issue where um there was an argument over uh, because katzenberg had been at disney they were fighting over a spot a slot in terms of a date for a movie to come out. And there's a tradition in Hollywood that you don't put out two movies of the same sort of concept against each other. It happens mm. very rarely. Is it like an unwritten rule type yes. thing? Yeah. So you don't, so occasionally you put into, into, so usually one of them backs off. It's a game of chicken. Yeah. So usually if you put two into development, so let's say one studio of one of the big studios has development on a movie that's about asteroids and stuff and that destroying the world. And another one does it. You're supposed to back off. Mm. Sometimes it doesn't happen. So in that case, Armageddon, Deep Impact, both, movies were released but normally everyone working on it early on the writers and things assume that one of the them will be killed that they'll kill one of them they wouldn't release both of them because you'd harm both of you because you know how many movies about asteroids destroying yeah, the world do people sure. want to see yeah. but or you usually bump one off to another thing or you retool it to change it right so because of that right they had a thing with um disney and uh dreamworks because for they were both had animation things right and it's much easier to animate exoskeletons than it is like human beings and stuff. So unfortunately, uh, a movie called Ants and a movie called A Bug's Life were both being planned at the same time. Right. And so there's a big fight over what day they'd be released and things like that. The general consensus in the Hollywood stuff is the first one to get out is supposed to be more successful. That hasn't always been the case. But there's a feeling for that. And so it tends to rush production of both uh, movies and can be a big problem. So usually you figure out some way of working it out. Mm -hmm. But that's the, the one where... Porter talks about rivalry among existing competitors. I would describe rivalry in the movie business as l fairly low. Um, because for the most people, people are, or most situations, people are on the same page in a way. Well, what I just described yeah, is very yeah, rational. Yeah. So they avoid doing dumb things like that. Mm -hmm. And in part is because a lot of the people being used for the, for the movies are not completely, now that there's not a studio system, are not really loyal to that loyal. They're, they're somewhat loyal, but not that loyal to each studio and stuff. So there are these unwritten rules and stuff, like I said, about what would be considered like not very good behavior. Mm -hmm. And the same thing I think is true. And like we talked about ad agencies and things like that there's certain things that are kind of 
um, in other industries would be considered acceptable, but are considered like reduce your rivalry sorts of things. So like I've mentioned before with ad agencies, I don't think there's much effort put into um, trying to take business from a satisfied customer of somebody. Um, there's relatively little of that. And the same thing in like big banking relationships and things. I think there's an effort to like stay in touch with them and be a possibility down the road. But generally you have to lose the business to, for someone else to really be able to win it. It's your account server has to be put in review. There has to be some dissatisfaction before someone else can win it. You mm -hmm. don't try to come in and say, I'll offer a lower price. And that tends to be true in some other industries, like, you know, we're do a hedge fund industry and stuff. Usually one hedge fund does not try to take the list that another one has sure. and say, I'll offer you uh, 75% less on pricing. So they tend not to compete on pricing. They yeah. tend to compete on other things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think, if you had to make a prediction about what's going to happen over the next 10 to 15 years with streaming, movies, movie theaters, what would your prediction be? I think COVID has changed movies more than almost any other industry. It would be my guess um, because it's going to be very, very hard to start movies back because there's a chicken and egg problem. Theaters don't want to open without movies booked that everyone wants to see. And you lower your um, the value, the lifetime value, not just like today, but you permanently diminish the value of a movie by releasing it into a situation like now. So in some cases, it makes sense to hold a movie for years if you have to, if you know you have a really good movie for the same reason that you wouldn't dump it on a day when there's it's very popular for something else. There have been cases of movies released. There were movies released during rioting by accident. They, they didn't know the riots were going to happen. So, you know, uh, there were movies released September 11th, you know, right around yeah. September 11th, things like that that had a permanent damage to it, permanent damage to its reputation. Fewer people saw it because the original run in theaters is what gets it its reputation forever for people to download it and whatever. So you can't a totally new, like a new movie... Uh, I'm not talking about a sequel of something, but if you were going to release a new concept, something that was like based on a spec script or something, you would permanently damage the movie if you released it during COVID because it's very hard for people to figure out what it is, why they want to see it, instead of giving it like a slow rollout in movie theaters where it can get critically acclaimed, people can like it, there yeah. be word of mouth, yeah. and that can build its lifetime value. So there will be some that like sit on shelves for a long time. And I think that more than anything is the harm from COVID and it'll be a huge harm for movie theaters. So I wouldn't, I've never, there's never been any threat to movie theaters. That's anywhere near as big as this one. Um, I mean, since, since TV came, mm -hmm. TV was the biggest threat ever, but since then you had TV and you had VHS, you know, since those things, I think this is definitely the biggest ever because of the problem that we're describing, which is like, you, no one wants to go to movies unless there's the movies you want to see there. Mm -hmm. But studios will be reluctant to release those movies in unless they can be promised that they're around. Now, from what we've seen, like when they do put movies that people want to see, theaters have said that like people are willing to go to to the movies. Of course. Okay. Yeah. But you're an avid movie but, uh, goer. Yes. Yeah. And your life has been affected by. I mean, Jeff would go sure. sometimes twice a week, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And it's, it has a huge impact that way. So I, of all the things, like people talk about COVID stuff and how much they think it'll change this industry or that, for most of them, I'm a little more skeptical. Mm -hmm. But for movies, I think it's huge and it's something you wouldn't have predicted, especially because of the, like we we're talking about the dates that they have to be put on. That creates this huge backlog that's a just tremendous problem that studios have to do. They, they plan it years in advance for like Marvel movies and Disney movies and things like that for things of that level. So this like, I mean, cause I know like when the Mulan thing happened, people were saying, 
oh, this is a decision by Disney that they want. They think that releasing it this way is going to be as successful. Yeah. Not at all. It literally was like our inventory is, is perishable. Like we don't have enough shelf space to sell all the movies we've been making. Mm -hmm. We have to do something. And in that case, in China, you're kind of able to see movies. And this movie was never going to be that big in the U.S. I mean, it would do okay, but this is a very Mulan. international. Yeah, See, it, I'm surprised like that... an all Chinese cast for it and stuff. They really didn't use um, well-known American actors for it and things like that. So it was an obvious choice to do as compared to other sorts of movies. See, I would have thought that they would have done other movies because Mulan. I, I well, actually, I guess. It well, they don't want to give this slot of like Jungle Cru Jungle yeah. Cruise or whatever, where you have something like The Rock in it. You know, where yeah, it's more it's more understood by. Uh, and I guess Mulan, audiences. since like I mean, I grew up watching that movie. Like um, it was like on VHS. Like that was like uh, I, apparently like our favorite. Like we used to sing the song. Right. Like, but then they on the business. <laughs> like that was our. Favorite but then thing. they may figure you might buy it. Yeah. So that's okay, what I'm saying. So, might do so that. Yeah, it yeah. makes sense why they would release right. that now because what marketing they have to do. I'm like Mulan. Yeah, I used to watch that movie all the time. When I was younger, you right? Know? Exactly. There's but the, the, the problem people. is the ones that are dangerous that they could like really permanently harm the movie is like um, the uh, Christopher Nolan movie, right? So what's it called? Tenant. Uh, anyway, so I was watching a movie last Interstellar. Didn't he write? Yeah, yeah, he did Interstellar. Yeah, best movie ever made. <laughs> and if you, if you, I still think it's the greatest movie ever made. Interstellar? Really? I love it. It's like, right. literally like I, I want to cry at the end of it. I love it so much. Okay. Yeah. So because of that, and you have never seen Memento still? No. No, I have not. Yeah. I don't think so. You told me to watch that though. Yeah. Well, you're two for two on telling me to watch stuff, so I, I, I got to watch it. All right. So, um, yeah, but that kind of movie anyway, because so Interstellar would have been a good example. Yeah. So if Interstellar had been scheduled to be released during yeah. COVID, People were like, that's what? a huge problem because yeah. you have to see it. You they have to see it in theaters. I think and it they don't know like, what it is. Yeah. See, I like movies like that though. It took me probably like three times to really understand it. Okay. And like throughout the movie, I'm like pausing it and I'm on Reddit. Be like, what do they mean with this situation? All right. Yeah. What are they implying here? You know, I like movies like that where you could watch it over and over again and you just kind of like take something new away from it but yeah yeah and so those sorts of things have more of a risk to it versus you know like other, Mulan. Other, yeah. The, yeah and the movie movies in general have gone much more in the direction of things that are pre-sold so the kind of things that's what they call it the franchises so like um it has gone more to things that are either remakes of older stuff or that are um superheroes or things that people recognize and and a lot of that is to save on the marketing and uh, stuff like that as compared to what it used to be um, because it's hard to get people into the theater. So it was already going in that direction, but this way is even more of a problem by COVID because the, you had some people who were willing to go to theaters and try things out and sample them. And in a way, the, those people helped um, through word of mouth and stuff, create the path for other people to then watch it on streaming and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And so now it's just really, I mean, um, what was the, the things that it will kill are like, oh, what was that Russell Crowe uh, movie they had? That size budget um, is just released. But anyway, that size budget is the kind of, it's not a blockbuster movie, uh -huh. but it's still kind of expensive. And those are the ones that can be killed during COVID because they have to have a run in theaters that'll be successful because no one's going to find that on streaming. Like that have that, it's not a high concept idea or whatever, you know, which is the kind of things that work on streaming. What about streaming music and competition there? Like Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora. Yeah. Because I mean, they pay every time people listen. That's right? their Spotify. problem. So like we were talking about the, the bargaining power, right? Mm. So there's some stories about that recently with Apple, right? So Apple's having a dispute with, who's it, Epic Games? Who, who does Fort, whoever the publisher of Fortnite sure. is. Yeah. Uh -huh. And, um, and so they're pushing back on that because they take a very big cut. 
And so that's a problem. So it, generally in industries like that, what will happen is they ha- Apple will have to reduce its cut of those things versus the cut for an app that isn't very successful. I mean, who has bargaining power there? Is it Fortnite or Apple? Uh, it's Apple, but it tends to be that companies usually discriminate to benefit their biggest suppliers over smaller suppliers. And so Apple may, we'll see what happens. There's a few issues for Apple on that one. So one of them is that if you're doing like 70-30 for everyone, let's say, Apple may want to stick to that with this idea that everyone gets that. But that's not how it works in most industries. The other potential problem to it is they go to the public and to governments and push things on a propaganda thing against you. And then you tend to cave in to make concessions, yeah, yeah, to make concessions for that reason. And so that also has happened many times in other industries. But they have a lot of bargaining power on it, Apple, absolutely. And so that's the advantage that they have in that area. Um, but because of that, a big thing is like, I don't know what will happen in that case. But what happens in many industries is Apple might be willing to concede privately but won't want to concede publicly. Because it's very important not to be opa- uh, not to be transparent about your pricing when giving rebates to big customers. To and stuff. not be transparent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah, be because opa- everybody else would come and be like, "Wait, what? Yeah. The, what the heck's going on? Right. Yeah, I it's, wanna... it's the Rockefeller thing, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And, and it's also the things when we talk about net neutrality and all those sorts of things are just different names for the same thing, which is you're giving rebates and some things to mm-hmm. bigger customers. But that does happen to everyone. Uh, in most industries, they will do that, even though they may phrase it in different ways about how they do it. So it may be that. The a small app developer get has to uh, keep only seventy percent or something of revenue, but a large one may keep eighty percent and things like that, right? Um, publishers negotiate different contracts with different authors of different sizes and things like that, and they may tell you there's a standard starting contract thing, but as it goes, I mean, you read the Arnold Schwarzenegger book. Mm-hmm. They don't normally give points that that is like percentage of the box office to stars, and they'll tell them absolutely not. But when it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, they said okay for twins. Yeah. 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 So uh, there are certain people who who get special um, negotiations that way, but it is important for them not to have it revealed to everyone that they're doing that. That's absolutely true. Well, it's very much uh, Tillman Fortito is talking about (laughs) Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Yes. Like, (laughs) seen that a million times. Forrest Gump, right? How they negotiated a deal. Right. uh, For something with bubblegum shrimp. Yes. And they, they made way more money from that deal than they did um, from the movie. And even today, they're still making a ton of money from it, right? And I never heard, I've right. read about that being publicized anywhere, like being a known fact until he was talking about that because he's the one that actually has to pay them because he owns, yes. he owns that company. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see what happens with with Apple and all of those. And even when we're talking about, I should point out, like other industries have things that they don't advertise. Uh, ad agencies occasionally will mention this publicly and stuff. They do make good stuff. So sometimes when they mess up something and you either can't get the ad space that you intended to get or they make a mistake and put you on a terrible TV show that they thought was going to be decent because they bought the upfronts and whatever, they'll actually help they'll to keep the client and not make them, you know, quit over that. They'll kind of eat that loss on some things and stuff, and it'll even out over time. On movies, they definitely do the same thing. If you've ever heard the... Uh, the line like limited engagements and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's actually code for, we couldn't book the movie for more than two weeks into a theater because they're concerned that no one will show up. Got it. And so what they'd rather book is like eight week guarantee and stuff, you know, but they don't do that. And if you read some of the 10 Ks of companies, they actually have agreements where, um, the longer a movie plays in theaters, usually the more the theater owner gets to keep because they want to encourage them, right, to book them in for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we talk about market power. That's the advantage that some uh, companies have over others. And, and it's very important. And uh, over time, for instance, recently, in the last 10 years, 
Disney has gotten a lot more market power over theaters. Okay, it didn't have that before. And, I, you know, and we'll see what happens, but that may be a reason why theaters might, um, uh, why studios might buy other theaters and whatever. There was a, a, there's a, Supreme, there's a court case from a long time ago that was called the Paramount decision and stuff, which basically meant that you couldn't both operate a movie studio and own uh, theaters. Okay. Is it because it's like a tree, like a monopoly in a way or what? Yeah. You can be vertically integrated that way. So because of that, there has been in the United States for about 70 years, that hasn't been the case, but now it theoretically could be sort of the way that you had, you couldn't own different TV and radio and things in the same city and newspapers and stuff. And and then that was relaxed, same sort of ruling. So because of that, you may see some um, changes in that. But the reason why people would why there some companies might buy things like different theaters and things like that where it could be important is in negotiations with some companies as an example amazon people are shocked and horrified of amazon considers buying a movie i was gonna ask you about that it's very logical because it would improve your bargaining power with disney sure okay so like with companies like disney and warner brothers and stuff there's a couple companies that are very very big and and some have shrunk over time and aren't so so like paramount doesn't have the bargaining power it used to but disney has more bargaining power than ever and if you're amazon or something uh, or your AMC or whatever, you realize that being both Amazon and AMC together would make a lot of sense when, when trying to negotiate um, deals for movies and that not having that would be a bit of a problem, mm-hmm. right? Because these studios want to get into both places and they have a lot of power over it for certain sorts of movies like Marvel movies and stuff. And it makes a big difference. I mean, um, like, anyway, like I said, I knew someone who worked at one of the biggest um, movie theater chains in the United States. And, um, there were only three groups for which they had to, uh, everyone at headquarters had to dress up and stuff. Okay. Okay. Three groups were their biggest investors, their beverage partner. This company was Coke. So you might figure out which movie theater is, but it's always Coke or Pepsi and Disney people from, any of the other movies so they all had to look came, busy. There, there was no special dress code. So what, no but there was a special dress code for Disney. Look busy. Um, there's special dress code for Disney and stuff. There were special efforts made when Disney was visiting. Move that mouse. Look uh, busy. But not for. But as I said, not for Paramount. Yeah. You know. So that gives you an idea of the market power and the market power for beverage partner. And the reverse way that it was very important. Obviously, Coke's relations with a movie theater are critically important to them, or with an airline until COVID and stuff. But you know th- that having those places or your relationship with mcdonald's or whoever there's certain relationships that are much bigger than any of your other ones Mm -hmm. and that becomes important that way um the problem like we said with like spotify right so everyone asks like why is spotify going to podcasting stuff yeah because right now if you want to make money off podcasting you negotiate you don't even really negotiate you tell them what the prices will be and stuff but you deal with a hundred thousand different podcasters okay you deal with like three music labels for all your music Mm -hmm. they uh, spotify is at a huge disadvantage versus music publishers music publishing is a very um oligopolistic sort of thing that has been for a very long time and in many ways spotify needs them more than they need spotify um they dictate the terms and those sorts of things as big as spotify could get it won't get bigger than the labels that way and you see that in a lot of things like brands you know buffett's talked about this but the truth is like people talk about like oh is it that you know people don't want to eat heinz ketchup and philadelphia cream cheese and whatever because of health things no 
it's that they're going to buy, everyone's going to Walmart and Costco and stuff, and they get a lot of power over it versus there used to be local grocery stores and mm-hmm. places and very small chains yeah. and stuff. They had no bargaining power. So now they're going for like Kirkland. Right. And, yeah. No, no, no. But, but more than that, Costco actually can threaten not to carry Philadelphia cream cheese. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Joe Rogan maybe can threaten, I need a better price. Maybe Epic Games, I don't know, can threaten Apple about this thing. Someone can. You know, some apps are the biggest apps. Mm-hmm. But a hundred of your smaller apps can't threaten anything unless there's collective action on their part, you know? So what's your bargaining power? Your bargaining power has to be one of your, you have to have a very large share um, of the purchases. And it used to be that no one bought a lot of any brand. But now if you're buying 15% of all the Philadelphia cream cheese in the country, then you can negotiate a better price or you can negotiate special packaging. Mm-hmm. I want it in, you know, which Costco does and, yeah. and special terms on all sorts of things, late payment on things. I talk about ad agencies. The most common thing that seems to be a dispute for them is customers wanting to pay them slower, right? So there's float in that business sure. and they don't want to do it the opposite way. So they want to be like, okay, you bill me, but then I want, you know, I want 90 days instead of 15 days for this thing or whatever. And that's a common thing for them to argue about. So, like, that's the bigger issue than competition. Competition matters because mm-hmm. it weakens your position. So, like, say, podcasting or whatever. If there's a ton of different podcasts, the competition among the podcasts does weaken your position when negotiating in the sense of trying to get a certain cut of whatever, just like it does if there's a lot of apps. If Apple gets only 1% of their revenue from their biggest app, then they can pretty much dictate terms. But if they get 60% from one app, then they can't Mm -hmm. because they become very dependent on it. And that's what I mean like with Spotify, with podcasts, their big thing is the very biggest podcasts in the world are really small. Sure. Mm -hmm. But that's not true for for music publishers. Yeah. Like your relationship, and it's not true for other things I talk about, ad agencies. I mean, there are ad agencies that buy 30% of some network's um, ad space and stuff. There's music publishers that probably publish 30% of the music that's on some platform, you know? So you... I mean, it would be very bad for some company if the music publisher said, we're not going to work with you at all anymore. That would suddenly, to the people listening to them, it would be like, why have, you know, three out of the top 10 artists of whoever I'm interested in suddenly disappeared? Well, it's kind of like Jay-Z with, what's his title? He took all of his music, him and Beyonce, off of Spotify, and they Mm -hmm. have their own, you know, app thing. Right, so you can either do that by being people by being Taylor like, Swift, you, same right. one. Yeah. So you have to be a few of the biggest people around, or you have to get together to do something collectively. Which focus compounding, going to focus, the, the premium app. Focus compounding, going <laughs> to premium app. Yeah. So I have a question. So there's a couple of takeaways, right? Mm-hmm. One, I need to watch Mad Men, and everybody listening should watch Mad Men because you frequently reference. Yeah, I don't Mad think you'd like Mad Men, like, but it's and, good. Uh, yeah, I've yeah. tried like a couple of times. Yeah, I have tried. I don't I see tried. that. I, I think I need like a cigar like. and like <laughs> scotch if I'm going to watch it because yeah. that's what they do the whole time. Um, okay, but so everything you know about Disney, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they have many different you know competitive advantages. What do you think is their number one? competitive advantage is it like an intangible such as like you know like the brand i mean what do you think yeah got it so it's i like mean the honestly the, the, the difference is that disney so disney is unlike any other entertainment company and that their brand means something like i said i mean that that's not to say and each of their brands mean a lot but like i was at disney parks this year and it is amazing in terms of how people are wearing your corporate logo and stuff and have an idea of what it means in a way that no other company does yeah, that you, isn't you're not, that you are not jeff gannon when you're working there you are right. not Jeff Gannon. You yeah. are whatever you are. Mickey Mouse. You're Mickey Mouse right now. 
mm-hmm. in a different themed world. You yeah. Know? So like, you know, all these different companies that we're talking about, um, I mentioned critically mentioned Paramount a few times, but Paramount owns, I guess in their case, they would own, uh, things like mission impossible series, uh, star Trek and things like that. Cause they, they could trace their roots back to Desilu. But, um, uh, the untouchables, okay, I believe that is Paramount yeah, movie. Cause one. it certainly was a Desilu production, but, um, so they have certain things yeah. that, and, and I mentioned those because that's like Disney 50 years ago. Th- those rights exist because of movies that were made uh, 50 or more years ago. And so they still have them to today. So mm. that's very valuable. And some companies have that, right? And like I said, Universal and Warner and, and all those do. But the difference with Disney is they have something of that where there's some trust in a movie coming out that way. For other ones, there's not. So um, there is for some stuff, but like, so Warner, right? If they put out a DC movie, I guess you have some idea what a DC movie means. I would say though that you ha- there's more trust of what a Marvel movie means than a DC movie. Sure. It's more strongly branded in a certain way, whether you like it or not. It is a certain promise that is more so a specific promise than DC. So when you think Marvel, what do you think? I think it's going to be an expensive production that has a certain sense of uh, fun in it, but is not a base is not actually a comedy thing, but Deadpool was that Marvel? Okay. Yeah. So Deadpool is an example. Yeah. And Deadpool also does break off a little bit too, because you have both rating and uh, so it's more outright comedy and more of a different rating than you uh-huh. have, which yeah. breaks with almost everything. Yeah. Else. They said that they had that idea for like over 10 years and like no one would ever take it. Right. Because they're like, no one's going to like this. Or they had to do it at a lower budget and stuff yeah. to make it justified for it, but it, it worked out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so you do have ones that break that mold. Right. But in general, I would say that you have more of a specific thing that has just like I would say that I think Pixar developed more of a specific brand than DreamWorks did. And to some extent, of course, you brand something to be a little bit different. In some sense, some of the things that are associated with DreamWorks were because it's anti-Pixar, you know, because Mm -hmm. the two are seen the same way for a while. So because of that, I think you have some like difference there with Disney or whatever. But the reason why I mention is because if you think about it, like some of the other big studios, right? So Disney took over Fox and stuff. So if we look at some of the other big studios, you have Universal and you have um, Warners, for instance, that have been around forever. Um, I don't think that's any sense in which you would even remember that they produced the movie. Okay? <laughs> mm-hmm. So in some cases, I might know a little bit more about the Hollywood thing, so I remember who made what yeah. movie. Yeah. But you don't really remember, was it that globe that spun around in the yeah. beginning or is it the, the WB lot um, yeah. that they showed me at the beginning of the movie, right? Yeah. Paramount, did they show me the... Um, the mountain, or in the case Pixar. of Columbia with with Sony, yeah. then Pixar, the little light thing, right? You know. So Pixar, you know, I think that that really brands in a way that you mm-hmm. remember it. Disney really brands in a way you remember it. Happy Madison, <laughs> there <laughs> you go. Way. The guy hitting the golf ball, <laughs> yeah, right. But but whether you like it or not, that is you know. So that's a production company, but that's a specific branding of it that is different yeah. that you would remember. But for most of the distributors of movies, you want it. So when we're talking about the the major studios, they own certain things. But for the most part, it's just a question of what their catalog is and stuff. Most people don't remember what's an MGM movie and what's a Fox movie and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that only certain ones are branded that way. But you remember from the Disney World book and stuff that when Disney went into other kinds of movies, they had to create like Touchstone pictures and stuff. So Disney, the company, was releasing under Touchstone and was releasing under Weinstein Company at the same time that they were doing Disney movies. They clearly did not put the same uh, logo on all of them mm-hmm. and you had to do that. They weren't going to release an R-rated Disney movie yeah, or, or an art house movie under Disney. You have yeah. a certain idea of what Disney is. And I think that's different than all the other companies in the, in the industry. But all the other ones do have 
uh, catalogs of some kind that's valuable, right? That you can release. It is like I was saying with Paramount, it is a huge advantage to have to own the rights to Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Because after you make a couple of successful ones, anyone would be willing to make a Mission Impossible movie, but you're the only one that owns the rights to it. Like you took a chance on the first one or whatever, maybe. But after there's been three or four or five successful ones, then you're in an advantage that way, and then you own it. And that, to me, is a bigger advantage than like a patent. And we've seen that with, with Mickey Mouse, who's still under, they've gotten the law changed a few times, uh. but still under copyright protection. You know, and then it's interesting. Like you think about like Netflix and and Dis- mm-hmm. Disney with like you know Hulu and also Disney Plus. You know, Netflix, for example, they make their own TV shows, they make their own movies, and they could also decide who can go on their network. You know, so it's like where's that fine line of who has the bargaining power there? Sure, and almost all the companies that have been, we've talked about this before off off air and stuff. But if you notice the pattern that like Spotify is following and stuff falls right into the Netflix, the HBO, the whatever pattern, Amazon pattern of knowing that they have to make a certain amount of content themselves Mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, you want exclusive content, but two, you want a certain amount of bargaining power that we were talking about. It's very hard when these things start out, they have to do things that are very expensive. Like when Fox started in different countries and stuff, uh, not just Fox, but Sky and different companies that are associated with Murdoch, they had to pay a ton of money to get movie rights that were popular in that country and sports because that's the only way you can crack into a country that way. And for some of these things we forget now, but like Hulu and stuff, they paid for like Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. They paid for reruns of things or like we were talking about Netflix or whatever, right? You watch The Office, the office on that. Yeah, right. They have to pay an incredible yeah. amount of money to Universal, whoever produces that, to because there's only a certain amount of things that everyone knows can play so well in reruns that way forever. And so it's much better to create something that you, it's much cheaper for you to create something where for some reason people are watching you because you created Game of Thrones or you created Orange is the New Black or you created, you know, Breaking Bad or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And by doing that, you can bring people in that way without having to pay an incredible amount afterwards. Like we're talking about. I mean, that's a, that to me is what Spotify is following is the same as the other ones we're talking about, which is a bargaining power issue, which is in the long run, it's very, very expensive to pay for, I mean, we could just do this, but let's think of all the fortunes made by owning radio stations. Okay. Mm -hmm. We got that in our head now. (laughs) Let's think of all the fortunes made by being in one of the biggest music publishing companies. All right. The second category is much more has the ones that became incredible amounts of market value yeah. and the dividends that they paid out and the companies they were yeah. parts of everything. They're just it's an incredible what it is, right? The reruns and everything that come with it. Yeah. You know? But the same thing's also true. If we think, okay, let's think about film libraries and who owned them and how much money they made off of them and how much they borrowed against them to buy things and stuff. Okay. We've got that in our heads. Now let's think of all the great fortunes made in running movie theaters. Mm-hmm. A lot less. Because owning a owning the Turner um, movie libraries mm. is a lot more valuable than owning the theaters in which they play them. The same with radio stations. Yeah. Radio stations, you know, they pay every time they play uh, a song, and that those royalties. It's much better to have the that royalty stream to be either the artist or the publisher mm. than it is to be the radio station that plays it, and that's. Spotify is basically the radio station that plays it. Now it's on like super scale and it makes money that way, but it's just like a giant radio station until it can find some of its own programming mm-hmm. that it can do. Yeah. Which is much cheaper. There's a, you know, it, the most profitable like TV stations around are those things that are like, you know, Fox News and CNBC and things like that that can basically pay their hosts very little if they get uppity. They uh, can 
get rid of them and bring in a yeah. new one and create a new star. Uh-huh. Um, you know, not ones where you have to bring over people who you pay an incredible amount of money to and stuff. The things where you can create your, your own content because it's so cheap to have. And that's the bargaining power thing that we talk about. So many things when you read these like reports in CNBC, Bloomberg, wherever you're looking at these things, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, like why are the companies doing this? It should make a lot more sense when you think of it in the perspective of like the bargaining power sure. aspect to it. Who owns the content? Yes. And that they know what they're paying. And sometimes they look and they're like, we're not really making enough money off of some of the things that we do. Well, how much does Netflix pay, pay for The Office? It's a pretty significant amount. It's a lot. You know, why do you think some shows like that? So you and I, we were talking, we're in New Mexico. We we're talking about this because of uh, being in Albuquerque, okay. right? With Breaking mm-hmm. Bad. And that's right. where it's um, Bad, yeah. where it's based. Why do you think like Breaking Bad got more popular as the show went on? Because that got more popular. Game of Thrones got I think more popular. Str- yeah. The Office got way more right. popular. Yeah, I think for, for Breaking Bad, so I think it was streaming stuff mm-hmm. mainly. Um, Same thing with The Office, just the ability just to quote-unquote binge it, you know? Yeah. Which is a term that came from Netflix, you know? Yeah, and I think that some of the things that have... Con- uh, yeah, I think that that's true. Also, they have sort of like... Um, most of those have things that are... I mean, maybe Game of Thrones is different, but most of those have things that are kind of hard to sell on the concept. So what I mean by that is like Breaking Bad sounds like a pretty... Mm, just like a sort of like... Emmy bait uh, kind of TV series thing mm-hmm. until you watch it. It's execution dependent. So like the c- same concept poorly executed um, doesn't <laughs> work that way. well. Yeah. yeah. Now Game of Thrones. It's like a joke, right? Yeah. Stand up comedy. It's all yeah. in the execution. Yeah. Well, the thing about the delivery. The, think about the Office. That's the dullest concept for a TV show yeah. that you could imagine. Yeah. So people have to like, watch. Well, what it. is the Office? Well, it's uh, people in an office and you're filming like it's right. a reality TV, yes. but it's not. And there's this weird character. Yeah. 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 And so it, it's hard to attract people in the first place to it. Game of Thrones is different, but Game of Thrones had a low budget for its first couple of years. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure that it, it drew more and more people in, I think, as its budget uh, increased, too. You sure know a ton about, you know, you talked about on uh, one of our videos, uh, Circle of Competence. You said that's a bit, you don't like that. You we'll said you like area of expertise. wrong on who produced what. Yeah. Yeah, but, but you sure know a ton about anything that has to do with movies and, and that, you know, sort of business. Well, <laughs> anyway it, it is a, just an example there's plenty of other ones we could have talked about uh elevator companies we we did talk a little bit about music things uh-huh. whatever all these different oligopolies and things that have this and i just a lot of this is something that buffett thinks a lot about mm-hmm. and has talked about and i think it's something that people have overlooked when he's talked about brands and stuff it really isn't like americans have, have a pre- previous generation loved craft in philadelphia cream cheese and stuff and now everyone's buying these tiny organic brands or something it's not so much that as like they're all going to Costco and Walmart and stuff. No one is going to very small, even things like Kroger and stuff. They have mm. pretty big bargaining power compared to that. So it's that sort of thing. And I just think it's the most over, it's one of the most overlooked things in investing. When I talk to people, they always talk about competition. They never talk about like the bargaining power of whether this company can charge a lot or something. So when you read stories like the one that I was saying about with Epic and Apple and stuff, really pay attention to them or with Spotify and music publishing and stuff, really pay attention to them. And it'll like teach you a lot about that idea you know mm-hmm. that something could be really popular right like that this is a really good example take because almost everyone subscribes to these things we people could think this way right yeah a lot of times people are just like how many people are signing up for netflix or spotify or sure something? okay yeah. but for them running the company 
It's more like, how do we actually make yeah. money off of this? Yeah. Because we can't just be a pass-through thing where we're making a ton of money for everybody else. We I mean, have so, to capture it. So, and what is that for them? It's producing their own content? Producing their own content, not relying too much on only one party. Like you said, how much people pay for things. I'll give you an example of one where someone paid a lot for it. Is um, DreamWorks had a deal with Netflix and honestly, the reason why they had it, and at another time, the DreamWorks had had a deal with HBO. In both cases, the reason why they had it is there was at that time, you had Disney, but Disney also owned Pixar. You had at that time only a few companies that could provide kids TV for you. Mm -hmm. And Netflix really had a problem early on that while it could be popular for single, millennial, whatever people at first, it couldn't be popular for those that had kids and stuff. And so that's a threat because you're gonna sign up for something else to get the kids programming. Mm -hmm. And basically, Disney is, everyone wanted Disney, right? Yeah, and sure. then there's Nickelodeon. Yeah, but other than that, there's like, there's only like two or three p par partners you can go to to supply you. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the thing with music publishing. There's, you can't program um, a station to play music that doesn't rely on the very biggest music publishers around. You can't really provide a lot of kids programming unless you go to Disney, Nickelodeon, and um, and DreamWorks and stuff. Those were the only ones that they could get like any programming from. Mm -hmm. You know what this felt like? This podcast felt like uh, our conversation in the car <laughs> when we're driving for hours and hours and hours. May have been so a little off-topic conversation. No, yeah. that's, that's good though. I think we should start doing more podcasts like this where we just talk more about, you know, things that are going on right now in the news and kind of yeah. relay it back to investing as much yeah. as you possibly can. So just for the buying power thing, you don't, you want to be careful about relying on a very small number of suppliers over you. And then in terms of customers, which you can find in the 10 K and stuff, it's great to say our biggest customer accounts for 1%. Mm -hmm. When they say our biggest customer accounts for 55%, then you want to be worried about that. Cool. Well, thank everybody so much for tuning in to this podcast, 50 Minutes with Jeff and myself. This is kind of like back in the old days when we'd have some hour-long podcasts. Mm -hmm. Hope you enjoyed it. This is focuscompound.com slash app. Be sure to go to this uh, while our iOS app is in development. Pay seven ninety-five a month to get access to our full backlog, a bunch of videos where we do uh, you know, simple topics that are usually two to five minutes long. We looked very sad in these thumbnails <laughs> for some listen. reason. Yeah, I don't know and why. then you also get write-ups. There we go. Now we're happy. Uh, you also get write-ups on investing topics from Jeff. Surviving once a decade disasters, the cost of companies not keeping enough cash on hand, the ground number, what makes a value stock a value stock. All great topics. So be sure to go to that, focuscompound.com slash app. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in, and we will see you in the next podcast.